This is Dear Hamilton Baptist Church. Thank you once again for sponsoring me to come to Windswept Academy. I would like to share some exciting news with you all. On Friday, March 6, 2015, I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm excited to share this news because I know you guys have been praying for me. Thank you for your continued prayers as I try to learn more about God and grow closer to Him each day. Thank you for helping students like me come to Windswept so that maybe one day they can accept Christ in their hearts also. Your new sister, Lennox Blair Salway. And so I rejoice in what God is doing through that academy. I rejoice in what God is doing through Hamilton Baptist Church that this girl's eternity is now changed because the church here in Hamilton, Virginia has, has sacrificed that she might go to this academy. And so let us pray for this young uh, lady. Father, we thank you so much for Lennox and what you've done in her life through Christ. We pray that her faith will grow strong, that you would continue to equip her to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a father, a missionary there in Eagle Butte. Help her, Father, to know you well, to love you, and to follow you. Keep her as yours, Father. And may she worship you and glorify you in all she says and does. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I would like to invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke 4, verse 14. You'll find that on page 859 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Please hear now the Word of God. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word that we can now set our hearts upon. That we can see Christ through it. Father, I pray that you would exalt Jesus in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would give us a growing love for him. I pray that, that we would be captured by him, our affections and desires and longings. We will be one even more so this morning as we gaze upon our Lord, what He has said and what He has come to do. Please give us a great hunger and desire for Him. And let us see Him clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. April 4th, April 2nd, excuse me, 1739, marked an important day in the history of Christianity. It was the day, on this day that John Wesley, the Anglican priest, first preached outside in the open air 
an evangelistic message to a large gathered crowd. Prior to that point, Wesley was adamant that he would never take to the open fields to preach. He thought it was this new fad, totally inappropriate. He would write, I could scarce reconcile myself to this strange way of preaching in the fields. Having been all my life so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. Well, soon he grew accustomed to preaching outside, for it permitted him to preach to crowds much larger than any building could hold. In fact, on one occasion, he went to his father's church in Epworth to preach. His father had recently died, and there he wanted to go in the building and and mount his father's pulpit and proclaim the Word of God. But the rector of that church barred him from entering. He wouldn't allow him in. And so Wesley went to the graveyard outside the church and stood upon his father's headstone and preached his message to a massive field, a massive gathering in the fields there. He would travel in his days thousands of miles by horseback, preaching over 20,000 sermons, leading England to what historians have called their Great Awakening. A revival the likes England had never seen before and has never seen since. It all started in 1739 on an April morning, afternoon in Kingsworth, Bristol. In fact, Wesley would write about that day in his diary. At four in the afternoon, I proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation. Speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, Wesley chose to start this new ministry, the the exact same text that Jesus would choose to proclaim His ministry when He returned home in Nazareth. And so I want this morning to consider with you the the first sermon that we have recorded that Jesus has given to us, this incredible claim about who He is and what He has come to do. In fact, this passage is so wonderful, we're going to spend two weeks on it, God willing. We're going to begin today by considering the message that Jesus gives, and then next Sunday, God willing, we'll see the response of the congregation to His declaration. And so we, we see Jesus' sermon here, but before we, we even look at his sermon, Luke tells us about the growing fame of Jesus. So consider first of all this morning with me the Jesus' fame. You see that in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Now when it says Jesus returned, we might think, well, he returned from the desert. Well, I don't think that's what Luke means. What what Luke is telling us is that Jesus was in Judea for quite some time. And he returned from Judea to Galilee. And and we know this because if you study John's gospel, John will be the only one uh, of the four gospels that will tell us about Jesus' early Judean ministry. If you're interested, you can read about it. It's John 1 through chapter 4. It's there that Jesus would go to the wedding at Canaan or he would have that conversation with Nicodemus, for instance. He would cleanse the temple as well. And so Jesus began his ministry in Judea, which if you you remember Israel, if you have the bottom, the south is Judea and the middle is Samaria and the north where he was raised is Galilee. 
And so he begins his ministry in the south in Judea, but he will withdraw. He will return from Judea into Galilee. The reason why is because John has been arrested. Remember, we talked a great deal about John in our study of Luke. Well, Matthew and both Mark as well will tell us that on the occasion of John's arrest, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And so it seems like Jesus recognizes that things are getting a little heated down here in the urban south and that things are getting a little bit tense. And so he leaves that area because his time is not yet. And he heads up to Galilee, which would be considered the the breadbasket of Israel. If Judea was the urban centers, Galilee would be the rural areas where the grapes and the figs are grown and the weed is cultivated and the pastures are found and and the great fishing enterprise there in the Sea of Galilee. See, Judea is where the powerful and the rich live. Galilee is where the humble and the poor live. People are just making it. I don't know, perhaps you grew up on a farm. I think you're going to find this section of Luke's gospel interesting. This Galilean ministry goes all the way through Luke chapter 9 sometimes called the Galilean springtime of Jesus. It's almost like his honeymoon. There's very little opposition. Things are going well and wonderful for him as he's ministering to farmers and fishermen and talking about gleaning rights. And we see these feeding miracles to people who are desperately poor and simple and humble. And so he returns to Galilee and and word spreads. You see that in verse 14. And a report about him went through all the surrounding countries. You could translate this. And the fame about him spread. He's traveling from town to town. And he's become rather famous. A report is traveling around. Now, what is Jesus becoming famous for? Well, you might think it's his, all his mighty works. It's his miracles, his healing, the command over nature. But that's not the case at all. Note verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by them all. He's becoming famous as a preacher. That's what Jesus is doing as he travels throughout Galilee. I lo- in fact, I love this. God leaves heaven, comes to earth. And what does he do? He becomes a preacher. Amen. I think that's wonderful. The Son of God is a preacher. And then he's going around and he is proclaiming the Word of God. Of course, he will heal and he will feed and he will do all that. And we praise the Lord for that. But when he first began, he decided, I am going to preach. I am going to preach the Word of God. And so let us remind ourselves this morning, Hamilton Baptist Church, that the Word of God matters. That Scripture matters. That knowing God's Word matters. God left heaven, came to earth to teach us His Word. And so Christ came to do, and by the way, He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit, as you see in verse 14. Isn't that wonderful that the the Son of God is being enabled by the Spirit of God to proclaim the truths of the Father God? That He is coming under the Spirit of God to teach. You ought to pray for your Sunday school teachers and your pastors and your Bible study leaders that they too, like Jesus, would have the Spirit of God upon them to be enabled and empowered to proclaim His truth. Jesus was doing so, and as we see in verse 15, He was glorified by all. They loved it. They thought it was wonderful. His popularity grew. Crowds began to flock to Him. Synagogues were packed as they loved His teaching. Which, of course, raises the question, what was His teaching? Well, we see His teaching first on His return here to Nazareth. And so we not only see Jesus' fame, we see, secondly, Jesus' return. He's, first of all, He's traveling around Galilee, verse 14 tells us. We know He's spending time in Capernaum. If you look in verse 23, we'll see that next week. 
In fact, if you want to know what he's doing before he heads home to Nazareth, the end of John chapter 4 is very interesting. But eventually, he's traveling throughout Galilee and he decides to return home which, to Nazareth, which is in Galilee. The place, according to verse 16, where he is brought up. You see that? And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And so Jesus goes home, goes back to his own little village. And where does he go once he's home? Well, read on. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went to the synagogue, the the Old Testament church. The synagogue was developed when Israel was taken into Babylon in exile around 586. Remember the temple was destroyed and all of, all of God's people were no longer in the promised land. They thought, well, what are we going to do to worship? How are we going to pursue God? And so they formed these things called synagogue. It's a, it's a Greek word. And ago means to gather and sin means together. It just means to gather together. And so they started to gather together in these small little groups. And, and what they did when they gathered together is that they, they read scripture, they prayed, they sung, and someone preached. That sound familiar? Right? It's church. They're going to church. Right? And so you think of what Jesus is going to, these small rural churches, maybe a few dozen, perhaps as many as a hundred. We know if there were ten men in a village, they were required by the customs of that day to form a synagogue. And here Jesus shows up at, at church. In fact, this is the most ancient record we have of a synagogue service here found in Luke chapter 4. And we know that a scroll was given to Jesus. And, and uh, because he was the teacher, and they would carefully unroll the scroll, and they would read the text in Hebrew. But the, by this time, the Jews had forgotten Hebrew. They no longer could read or, or speak Hebrew, and so it was immediately translated into Aramaic. They would all stand for the reading of Scripture in respect, and then they would all sit for the preaching, including the preacher, which I think would be incredibly difficult to actually sit through a sermon. Um, but that's what they would do. They would all take a seat in humility, sitting under the Word of God, and there's Jesus in the synagogue. Now, why, why did He go to the synagogue? You know this in verse 16? It tells us, as was His custom. In other words, Jesus had a habit to go to church service. Right? And so you can imagine a little boy where there's Jesus. He's going to church service. A teenager is going to church service. 20 is going to worship God with His people. Now, he's a very small town, a couple hundred, maybe 400 people in Nazareth. No professional clergy or anything like that. You ever think Jesus heard a bad sermon? You ever think that maybe the, the preacher showed up and wasn't prepared? You, you ever think there were difficult people in the synagogue? You ever think he was tired on a Sabbath morning? You ever think he had maybe reasons not to go? In fact, I, I imagine if anyone ever had the right to say, you know... I'm going to worship God on a walk out in the woods. You know, I'm going to go fishing, and that's how I'm going to worship God. If anyone said, I don't need to be around the hypocrites at church today, it was Jesus Christ. Right? And where was he? As was his custom. He was at church. He would go to synagogue, and there we find him worshiping with God's people and all their faults, as was his custom, his habit, his routine. And he was given a scroll, as we see reading on in, at the end of verse 16, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And so he would receive a scroll. It would be a, 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 a very long handwritten document um, and there will be in this scroll no, no verses. There will be no chapter numbers at all. 
And Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. We'll see this in a moment. Now, I find, find all this very interesting. I think it gives us great insight into Jesus. Because he takes the scroll of Isaiah. By the way, second longest book in the Bible, 66 chapters. And he unrolls this, this very long document with no chapter numbers and no verse numbers. And he finds exactly where he wants to go. He quotes Isaiah 58. And then he'll quote more extensively Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And I just want you to understand, Jesus... Not only was God and perfect and all that, he knew his Bible, right? He studied the word of God. And by the way, he didn't have a Bible growing up. There's no way that he would have had a Bible in his house. And you have 25 Bibles in your house, don't you? You have a Bible on your phone. You have a Bible on your computer. You have, you have, we have Bibles everywhere. We have all sorts of translations. This town would have one or two copies of the Bible. They would be in long scrolls housed in the synagogue. And I wonder how many people would actually bother to read the Bible if they had to walk to church, find the scroll with no chapter numbers, no verse numbers, no study notes, no helps, right? We have Bibles everywhere. We have resources everywhere. You have notes even in your Bible. And, and yet, often we push it aside for something else and neglect it. Jesus didn't neglect it. He put in the hours. He knew the Word of God. He knew. I mean, you can imagine there's Jesus as a young boy. Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to church to read the Bible. He knew God's Word. He knew the Scripture. And He came here and He stood in front of them. The guest preacher is Jesus this Sabbath day. And therefore, He would not be the only one there. You imagine the place is packed. His fame has gone forth. It was a big day there in Nazareth. And the local boy coming home. People walking miles to hear him. And he would not disappoint him. For we see, thirdly, Jesus' sermon. His sermon is taken from the text Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. As I already mentioned, we note it in verse 18. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus chooses a very interesting passage. He chooses what we, what we tend to call the mysterious suffering servant passages in Isaiah. There are four of them. And Isaiah would prophesy 700 years before Jesus walked this earth that a great suffering servant would come. A mysterious figure who was the Messiah, who, would, who it was predicted would set everything right. And Jesus reads this text and then he rolls up the scroll and sit down to preach. And you, you notice Luke tells us the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. You can imagine the, the quiet there that must have took place while the scroll was put away, while everyone was focused on Jesus. What would he say? And what he said did not disappoint them. Right? It was perhaps the most amazing statement that they ever heard, an incredible radical claim. Today, I tell you, in this little room, in this little town, amongst these simple people, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am the promised one. I am the one Isaiah said one day would come. I am your riches. I am your freedom. I am your sight. I am your liberation. I bring to you the favor of God himself. Jesus went home and told him the Messiah has arrived and I am he. 
Now that's a sermon you'll remember. That's a sermon that will draw you in and the, you, you focus in on him as he proclaims this powerful truth. Now I know, by the way, some of you are going to notice that his sermon is rather short. It's just a sentence long. And you're going to come up to me afterwards, some of you. I've preached this text before. I've already heard it. Pastor, don't you like how Jesus preached? Why don't you preach more like Jesus? So I just want to be clear here. Look in verse 21 very carefully. And he began to say to them. He didn't just say this. He began to say. There's more here. Now this is the synopsis of his sermon. Okay, I trust it was hours long. But he just said this. What's the summary? What do we want to take home? That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Jesus publicly announces He is the one who's come from God. And so He not only tells us He's the Messiah, which is the anointed one. That's, that's what the word Messiah means, anointed one, as you see there in verse 18. But He tells us His mission. He tells us what He has come to do. In fact, I find it interesting that Jesus uh, doesn't choose a set of laws and tell them, I have come from God to bring you a new code, to bring you new advice or instruction He doesn't choose a a passage of rebuke saying, I have come from heaven to admonish you for your idolatry and your greed and pride. He doesn't choose a passage on judgment saying that I have come to bring the vengeance of God. He he doesn't choose a, a passage on the holiness of God telling you I have to come to declare that God is unapproachable from sinners like you. Instead, he chooses a passage on the gospel. You see that there in verse 18? Come to proclaim what? The good news. It's the word gospel to the poor. Some of your translations say to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And in doing so, he shows us his mission. What has he come to do? In fact, you, you look at this passage, there's really four different groups, aren't there? There are the, there are the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And he tells us that he's come to minister to them. And so what does he mean by poor, for instance? That's the first group he identifies here. And we think, well, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. We might think of the slums of Tijuana, as we heard about about a month ago. Or we might think about disregarded children in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. Or we might think about street orphans in Ghana. Right? And we might think, well, that's what he means to be poor. And so we say, well, Jesus has come to help those who are poor without. And so is, that, is that right? Did Jesus come to care for physical needs like poverty and blindness? Absolutely he did. Without a doubt he did. Read the Gospels. And he is constantly meeting people's physical needs. But that is not all he came to do. Right? He does not say, I have come to feed the poor. I have come to house the poor. Come to clothe the poor. He says, I've come to preach to the poor. I've come to care not just for their physical poverty, but their spiritual poverty, their spiritual blindness, their spiritual oppression. In fact, we know this is true because Jesus goes on to give us examples of who he means. Well, who who is he talking about when he talks about the poor? And he gives us two examples. We'll consider them more God willing next time. But look down at verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He's defining who it is he's come for. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So there's example number one, the widow. 
But notice example number two. And there were many lepers in Israel, verse 27, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So you have the widow, and then you have Naaman the, the Syrian general. Right? One is desperately poor. One's about to die when Elijah shows up. The other is amazingly rich. He shows up with about $4 million when he comes into Israel. I think it's important that Jesus didn't pick two poor people when explaining what he's come to do. See, he's come... You don't have to be literally poor to receive the gospel, evidently. You, You could be rich, you could be poor, but you have to be poor in spirit. You have to be spiritually poor. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And though Naaman's rich and the widow's poor, both are spiritually poor. You think about the widow's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's impoverished. She's a woman. She's she's outside the religious standards. You think about Naaman. He's a murderer. He's an enemy. He enslaves the people of God. He's an idol worshiper. He's an outcast. And God sends prophets to them, the spiritually poor. Jesus came to preach to the spiritually poor. You know why? Because the gospel is only received by the spiritually poor. That's the only people who will receive the gospel are those who are poor in spirit, who see themselves as having nothing to offer to God, nothing to commend themselves to God, nothing to present to God as a way of God accepting them. Now, most people in this world are spiritually rich, or at least spiritually middle class. Right? They, 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 they look in their life and say, I've done pretty well. I'm going to love my mom. Right? I, I, I'm kind to people. Pay my taxes. You know, I never hurt anyone. I'm a good person. This is how most people look at their lives. And they, and they conclude, therefore, God owes me. Now, they may not verbalize it. But you can tell when things don't go their way, they get angry. Because they feel like they deserve something better. When their job or their family or their money or their health does not go their way, they go, what's going on? I I deserve. I I look at my life. Look what I've done. I I deserve better than this. See, if you think God owes you, if you think God is in your debt, that you're entitled to something, you're not spiritually poor, and you will never understand the gospel. See, the, the spiritually poor, they look a little bit deeper. They see their heart a little more clearly. And they realize all they have is great debt. And they come to God and say, I make no demands on you. I'm not demanding you do this in my life or this in my life. The only thing that I'm asking for is mercy. Give me mercy. I have nothing to commend myself to you, God. I have violated your ways. I have turned my back. I need mercy. The spiritually poor, they don't list their achievements. They throw themselves on the mercy of God, which is the only way to receive the gospel. It is to throw yourself on the mercy of God. In fact, you want to receive the gospel. You want to be reconciled to God. All you need is need. That's it. All you need is nothing. Because if you come with something, and you say, well, I've been trying to fix up my life. You know, I'm I'm doing this better. I've done this. I've accomplished this. And you come and you present this to God. You have not come poor. 
impoverished. You haven't come with nothing. You must be poor. You must come to God with nothing to offer Him other than the crushing debt of your sin. Spiritual poverty, please forgive me. Please give me mercy. As we even sang this morning, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's poverty. That's who Christ has come for. The spiritually poor. Now the reality is, is that the people who are more prone to recognize their spiritual poverty is the actual poor. It is the economically poor. The actual blind, the actual oppressed, the actual enslaved. The people in need are more likely to see their spiritual poverty. In fact, you read Luke over and over again. You read any of the Gospels over and over and over again. And you constantly get poor next to rich, woman next to man, Gentile next to Jew, religious insider next to a notorious sinner, sick next to healthy, slave next to free, over and over and over and over again. We'll see it throughout Luke's Gospel. And who's receiving the Gospel? Almost always, it's the person without power. It's the person without means. It's the person who's on the margins. It is the outcast. It is the person in great need who receives the gospel. It's the wealthy and the powerful who turn their back and walk away. We see it over and over again. And, and you've experienced this, I think, because how often when you're sitting on your couch and everything's going well and, you know, the car's running and, and the, the, the marriage is fulfilling and the kids are obeying and the job is fulfilling and the, the body is working and, you know, everything is going great. How often are you at that point and you're saying, God, I need you. I need you. I am broken. How often do you feel your need in affluence? But trouble comes and suffering comes and hardship comes. The name of God springs out from your heart. Please, God, help. Please, will you help me? And you don't lay before him all that you've done. You just cry out for grace. You just cry out for mercy. You see, the actual poor understand. The actual troubled, the actual enslaved, the actual blind understand their poverty much better than the actual rich. And it's, it's true. I mean, just look throughout history. We see it all over the place. It's the poor who come to Christ. And we ought to be aware of that. I don't know if you know, but this is not a poor area. Hmm. The vast majority of you in this room are not poor. But you are overwhelmingly rich. And you've got to watch out that your wealth and your success and your family and your nice car and your big house do not harden you to your need for God's mercy and grace. There was a, a recently... A, I'm not sure I should share this, but here we go. Uh, please understand, I love you. Okay, so just listen to that. Here. There was recently a, a very wealthy white politician who, who preached, who didn't preach, who, who came and spoke to a group of black African-American pastors. And he said to them, his message was, don't you love this country? Because no matter where, how you start, 
if you work hard, you can make it to the top. You work hard, you can make it to wealth or wherever you're shooting for. And many of those black pastors thought about that. And they said, that's interesting because your Scottish immigrants came over to this land about the same time our immigrants came over to this land. And I'm pretty sure they worked, our immigrants worked hard, 18 hours a day under a lash. And we haven't made it. You see, it's the person who makes it to the top. You make it to the top, you are prone to, I did a good job. I worked hard. I'm not denying hard work. Please don't misunderstand me. Work hard. Get an education. Be wise. But it's the people on the top who are more prone to congratulate themselves. And the people who are on the bottom are more prone to see, you know, I'm sure hard work was involved, but there was a lot of grace there too to get you where you are now. You got grace. And see, it's that the people on the bottom who see the need for grace. The people on the top just see the need. Work hard and I'll do it. And this is why it's the people on the top who are always walking away from Jesus when He comes to Him and says, You can't work your way in. You need grace. And it's the actual poor who are constantly responding to the Gospel. Be careful, Hamilton Baptist Church. He come to preach the good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Now, we might think prisoners of war, but he's thinking, I think, bondage to sin, people who are enslaved, hatred, alcohol, bitterness, entertainment, pornography, food, guilt. I've come to free you of that. What sin holds you captive? He has come to liberate you. He has come to die for that. So some believe that sin is freedom. Jesus says, no, no, no. I, that's an illusion. I'm freedom. For freedom's sake, Christ has set you free, the Bible tells us. He has come to give sight to the blind. The physical blind... Well, yes. Yeah, uh, yes. He came and gave sight to the physical blind. He healed people. Jesus still heals people, by the way. The Bible says if you're sick, call for the elders. Let them come and gather around you, anoint you with oil, and pray for you that you might be healed. We, we do that at Hamilton Baptist Church. We believe God continues to heal. But I think the far greater miracle is the spiritual blindness that overshadows every one of us. At least in one time in our life when we are blind to who Christ is, blind to our need for salvation. And Jesus one day comes and opens our eyes, doesn't he? He said to Paul, the risen Lord, I am sending you to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light. Right? Have you had that experience? How many of you had that experience where maybe you knew about Jesus and, and uh, you knew all the facts about Jesus, but you didn't, didn't really care? Didn't really care about Jesus? Right? I mean, you, you, you maybe you believed everything about him, but, but he's kind of like that, that dog in the corner. You just pat him on the head and, and he's just in your life, but he's, your, your world's not around him. And then one day, right? Have you had this? One day, bam! The blindness is gone. And you see Christ for who he really is. Worth everything. And he draws you to him. That's the work of Christ. He has come to give sight to the blind. Liberty to the oppressed. Those who are overcome by life's circumstances. Those who can see no way out. Those who are being crushed in their spirit. And Christ isn't promised necessarily to change your circumstances, though he does often. But he has come to give you liberty even in the midst of them. As you follow Him and experience that joy. In fact, you could summarize all of Christ's ministry in verse 19. It is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to what the Bible calls the year of jubilee. Sometimes called the year of the Lord's favor. Sometimes it's called the year of jubilee. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. 
You remember the Jews have um, uh, order everything in sevens, and even their years are ordered in seven, and so every seventh year they have what's called a Sabbath year. And, and you let the land, grow, uh, land lie fallow. Right? And God says, I'm going to provide for you in the sixth year so you don't have to work on that seventh year. We're going to let the earth recover. And so every seventh year, there's a Sabbath year. And then when you, when you have seven sevens, you have uh, the 49th year, right? And so that's a Sabbath year. But the year after that is a very special year. That every 50 years, it's called the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor. You can read about it in Leviticus 15. It is a picture of the gospel. You see, it's a year of amnesty. All slaves on the year of Jubilee... <laughs> are set free. Every single one is given their freedom. It's a year of redemption. All debt on the year of Jubilee is forgiven. All washed away. It's a year of restoration. All land that has been stolen, sold, taken, is restored to its ancestral owners. It's this massive year of celebration. Every 50 year, new start clean slate. Could you imagine? Could you, one day all your crushing debt, you're just under it. The next day it's just gone. All your debt's gone. Like your mortgage is paid off. Your credit card bills paid off. Cars, it's just all gone. No more debt. Could, could you imagine even more if you were a slave and one day just because of the turn on the calendar, you are free. Could you imagine if, if you have uh, lost your home, the land that your ancestors have grown up on, the, your family land, and you lost it. And one day you who have no home are, are given a home. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, I hope you can, Christian, because that's the gospel. Is that not what you, is that not your story? I mean, have you not felt the bondage to sin in your heart? And then Christ has come, what, to secure your freedom. Though this world is great, have you not felt a longing for another land, for another world? Well, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. Have you, have you not experienced the, the crushing weight of your debt to God? Well, Jesus has paid it all. It is the year of Jubilee. Today is the year of God's favor. Let's celebrate. The debt is washed away. Our enslavement is over. We have been given God's favor. The kingdom of God has come through Christ. He has come to bring this to us. I've come to bring you God's favor. Come to bring the kingdom. Come to bring a place where the poor are blessed and the captives are set free and the blind see and the oppressed weep no more. The king has come to bring it. And yet he's left the church here to continue to establish that kingdom. It's not complete yet, is it? We're still waiting for more. But he's left us here, hasn't he? That we would build his kingdom. That, that we would expand his kingdom. As the Father has sent me, so I have sent you, Jesus says. We are the presence of Christ here. We are his body. And we must continue to do this work here in Loudoun County and in Eagle Butte and in Ghana and in Tijuana and in Kurdistan and, and, and wherever the Lord may lead us to establish his kingdom here. And please understand the kingdom, the, the gospel is not, okay, how do I get out of this world? The gospel is not, okay, I receive Jesus and then I get to leave this place. That's not the gospel. Jesus came down here to bring the kingdom to this world. You get to the end of the book and it's not everybody taking off the earth and going up to heaven. It's the city of God coming down from heaven down to the earth to renew and to restore the creation which God has made. And he has left us here to, to give a mini version of what the future looks like. 
What it looks like to, for there to be reconciliation and forgiveness and for people to be cared for sacrificially. And so we are here not simply to, just to proclaim the gospel. Listen, we are not here just to tell people about Jesus with our mouths, making no effort to help the poor or serve our community. The Bible is filled with references of orphans and blind and immigrants and the poor. We're to care for them. It's to be a ministry of our church as we feed uh, children through our backpack ministry here in Loudoun County. Or we work with Tree of Life or many of you men mow the lawn of a disabled man here in town. We're to care for people like that. But we just can't care for them and not share the gospel. Jesus came and said, I'm here to preach. The most loving thing we could do is to free them from their captivity of sin, heal them from their blindness of unbelief. This is our work until Christ returns. To proclaim and to love just as Christ did. Until He comes. And He is coming. He is returning. In fact, I mentioned to you that Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 here. You know, He doesn't finish uh, verse 2. In fact, he stops right in the middle of the sentence. He doesn't complete the sentence. I I think he does so for a reason. If you read Isaiah 61, verse 2, it says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the Messiah will do both. He will bring God's favor and he will bring God's vengeance. But he won't do so at the same time. Today is the year of God's favor. What is coming is God's wrath, God's vengeance. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that Isaiah's prophecy will be fulfilled. Christ will complete it. Vengeance will come. But not today. Vengeance isn't for today. Today is the year of God's favor, the Bible tells us. Today is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. His first coming doesn't bring judgment. It brings salvation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, in stopping where he does, is declaring, I have not come to bring the vengeance of God. I have come to receive it. I don't come to bring God's judgment. I come to take it. I haven't come with a sword. I've come with nails in my hand. And I will take the judgment of God. I will take the wrath of God upon me that you might avoid it. Jesus Christ died upon a cross as a substitute for our sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He did so to pay the price of your debt. And now he offers you mercy, grace, forevermore. And all you need to do, all you need to have to receive the mercy of God is to come with, to him with nothing but your need. All you need is need. I invite you to receive Christ today. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our Lord. My hope today, Father, is that we would be delighted in Christ, that we would find such joy in him, that we would find such joy in the year of your favor, 
that we by no merit of our own have the favor of a holy God through the work of His Son. Thank You for grace. Thank You for mercy. Now please help us here in Loudoun County to avoid the traps that are all around us due to our affluence and health. Help us never to be numb to our need for You. Help us to be bold in proclaiming what Christ has done to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing.